All right, we're going to continue then in uh, our series in John. And uh, this morning, we're actually into chapter 8 of John's Gospel. We're gradually working our way through. And the title this morning is Jesus, Our Advocate. We're going to look at a very well-known passage in John's Gospel. It's the incident where the rulers brought a woman who was caught in adultery to Jesus to ask what should be done to her. And uh, basically they were setting him up, as we will see. And uh, you know that it's always important to look at the context. And so we're just going to backtrack a little bit, if you don't mind, just take a couple of minutes to get the context. In chapter 7, we saw that the leaders of the Jews were so concerned about Jesus and his popularity that they were now set on killing him. In fact, they, they waited in Jerusalem at the Feast of the Tabernacles for the people that were coming down from Galilee. They always came in a group together, like a caravan of people for safety, and people would meet them at the other end. They were waiting there for Jesus. They knew he would come so that they could arrest him and take him away and have him executed. But Jesus, of course, knew this and... Uh, uh, our times are in the Father's hands. He's the one that decides. Amen. And um, so Jesus went up secretly. He didn't go up so that he could be seen and caught. And he went up secretly. And then about halfway through the feast, he was in the, uh, the court, the temple court, and he was teaching. And the, lots of people were around him and listening. Many were believing on him. And the word got back to the leaders. He's here. He's teaching. The people are thronging around him. And so they sent the temple police to arrest him. But when they came, they started listening to him first. And they were absolutely captivated by what he was sharing. And they felt they couldn't arrest him. And they went back and told the leaders that. And they said, why haven't you brought him? And they said, well, never a man spoke like this man. And the, the emphasis in the Greek there is that he has to be more than a man. He's a man, yes, but he's more than a man. Never a man spoke like this man. And of course, they were furious. And uh, so what we see then in that chapter is that they came to Jesus like a roaring lion. They were so angry, they wanted to devour him. But it failed. And uh, what we're going to see now is that they come to him like a subtle serpent in a crafty manner. Now, we know in our own Christian walk that that's often the case. Sometimes you've, you've had days or, or weeks or months where it looks like the devil throws everything at you, including the kitchen sink. Isn't that right? Everything that can go wrong does go wrong and uh, people oppose you and uh, all of a sudden it just seems like all hell's broken loose. But you stand, and having done all, you stand with faith in Jesus. You come through that. But if you're not on guard, you'll miss the fact that he will come back to you like a subtle serpent and try to deceive you somehow. That's what happened here. They come at him in a very subtle way to set him up. And we're going to look at that now. So we get into chapter 8, verse 1. But when Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, now early in the morning he came again, into the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, 
Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. Now, just imagine this. The scribes and the Pharisees have caught this woman, they brought her, they drag her, probably she only had a sheet or something, a blanket wrapped around her, and they pushed their way through the crowds, interrupted Jesus while he was teaching, interrupted him, and, 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 and presented this woman to him to see what he would do in this situation. Now the guilt of the woman was beyond question. She was caught in the act. That's why they said, we caught her in the act of adultery. They didn't need to shame her publicly, though, did they? They could have held her in custody and came and said, look, we've, we have a woman that we caught in adultery, but they dragged her publicly and put her in the midst and shamed and humiliated her and put the question to Jesus. Now, the standard of evidence needed to convict someone in this situation was very high for this crime. First of all, there had to be two witnesses, okay, not just one, two people had to witness this thing. Secondly, they had to see her in the very act of adultery. They, it wasn't enough to see two people leaving the same room, not even enough to see two people in bed together. They had to be seen engaging in the act of sexual intercourse. So why I'm saying that is that the whole thing had to be a setup for those things to really come into focus. It was a plot. She was, she was set up so that they could use her to come to Jesus. The woman was not the target. Jesus was. That's very clear. Now, the question is why? Why was he being set up? And the answer to that is because of envy. People flocked to Jesus and not to the Pharisees because he is the image of God. People, for the first time, saw what God is really like. They saw God manifest in the flesh. They saw God fleshed out, as it were. Remember, Philip said to Jesus, Jesus, you keep on talking about the Father. Show us the Father, and that's enough for us. Jesus said, Philip, have I been so long with you? He that has seen me has seen the Father. I am God manifest in the flesh. As it says in Colossians 1 verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. And, and, and I believe that word was used very deliberately because the Jews were forbidden to make any graven image of God. Why? Because you cannot make an image that represents God. You're going to get it wrong. You're going to misrepresent him. The only true image of God is Jesus. God manifest in the flesh. As it says in Hebrews, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his purpose. People were seeing what God is like. God is love. And people were flocking to Jesus. You know, one of our statements here is um, changing the, world, the way the world sees God. Because religion has distorted the image of God. 
Religion has misrepresented him in such a way that, that people have been inoculated through religion against God. They've had enough to send them away and think, I don't want anything to do with that. Because it's been a gross misrepresentation. But Jesus came to set the record straight, to, to change the way the world sees God. God is love. And, and, and the amazing thing is that the worst people felt they could come and draw near to him. The people who had failed the most, the prostitutes, the, the fraudulent tax collectors, and, and the worst of society felt they could draw near to him. Not that he condoned sin, but somehow they felt comfortable in his presence. They were drawn to him. That's why the temple guards did not arrest him. They couldn't. This is God manifest in the flesh. He's more than a man. He's God manifest in the flesh. But herein was the sting. Could the love of God, as preached by Jesus, stand up against the law? Because the law defines sin. And the law says what must happen to sinners. And that was the dilemma. But here's the thing, friends. The woman's dilemma is ours. Amen? Whether she was naked or half naked, she's a picture of how we all are before God in our sin. Now here's the question. How can God show both love and justice to sinners? If he doesn't show justice, then he's denied himself. He's a holy God. He cannot count on sin, not, not one little bit of it. And we've all sinned. And come short of the glory of God. And so he cannot compromise his justice. But at the same time, if, if he doesn't extend love to the sinner, then Jesus has misrepresented him. He's not love after all. But how can you reconcile the two together? And that's what they thought was the, the, the perfect trap, the perfect plot to, to catch him to trick him so they had something they could accuse him of. He's misrepresented God. Come back to the Pharisees. We'll show you what God is really like with all their guilt and condemnation. The problem is they quoted the law of Moses but with a blatant omission. Where was the man? She was caught in the act of adultery. It takes two to tango, if I'm not mistaken. Right? Let's read what the law does say. The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Where's the man? If, he was, if she was caught in the act of adultery, there must have been a man with her. Where is he? And just in case they didn't understand that, Deuteronomy 22, 22. If a man found lying with a woman married to a husband, then both of them shall die. And just in case we didn't understand the word both, the man that lay with a woman and the woman. We're clear? Where is the man? You brought the woman. We're halfway there. Where's the man? The man was probably let go because he was a part of the setup. He was a part of the setup. Knowing what sort of woman this was, 
He was sent in to set up this whole situation so that she could be brought and the case presented to Jesus in front of everyone. What are you going to do? What do you say about this? Jesus stooped and wrote in the ground with his finger. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. I love this. You know, this woman was brought, set in the midst, shamed, humiliated publicly. Obviously, she was looking down in, with all her shame. And Jesus stooped and probably looked up to her as he stooped after he wrote. But then he says, he stood, he raised himself up and he eyeballed them. He eyeballed them. They dared to come to him, the one who gave the law, the lawgiver. And think that they can catch him by his own law. What did he say? He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. First. The one who is without sin, you cast the first stone. What did he say first? The law required two witnesses before a death sentence, that is, could be executed. It had to be two witnesses. And those witnesses must assist in carrying out the sentence. They had to be the first to cast the stones. The hands of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death. And afterwards the hands of all the people. So you shall put away the evil from among you. So Jesus was saying, okay, let's proceed. But correctly, let's do this correctly. Where are the witnesses? Where are the accusers? Because they are the ones that let the man go. And all of a sudden, they realized that they'd come to Jesus, who incidentally, after this passage, we finish at verse 11, in verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. You think you're going to come against me? The light of God, in all its brightness and brilliance, will shine upon you and expose you for what you are. This is what was happening here. They dared to think they could trap the Son of God, the light of the world, and he turned the spotlight on them. He said, okay, you know the law. The accusers, the ones who witnessed the act, where are they? Let them come forth and cast the first stone. And knowing he said the first stone, they knew that they were the ones that were responsible for letting the man go. Now, get back to the woman for just a moment. There still is a place for directly dealing with sins in God's family. But it must be done in love. See, we're in the new covenant now. Thank God for that. Half of us wouldn't be here otherwise. <laughs> we're stoned to death. We're in grace now. And, and, and Paul says, if a man is overcome with the sin, you who are spiritual, 
restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Wow. There's so much in that. Restore. See, discipline is not punitive under grace. It's not, we're not out to punish people. It's restorative. It's to correct people. And in fact, that word restore in the Greek, it was often used at that time in the, in the Greek world for uh, setting a bone that was broken. Okay, so imagine someone breaks their... Who's ever broken an, a, a, a bone before? <laughs> I broke both arms, okay? Thankfully, not at the same time. It has to be set or, or put in a sling so that it can be restored back to usefulness. Back to its original usefulness, right? That's the meaning here. You restore a person like that so that they can get back to where they were in, in, in their usefulness in the body of Christ and in the world. And, and consider yourself. How would you like to be treated if it was you? Okay, you might be strong right now, but remember a lifetime is a long time. You will have your ups, you will have your downs. How do you want pre people to treat you in your low times, in your times of failure? That's the grace of God. That's the love of God. But let's come back to this situation. Jesus wrote in the ground. The Greek word for to write is graphene. But here, the word used is katagrephenai, which can mean to write a record against someone. Okay? There's a different meaning. So, People have speculated, and I think rightly so. What did Jesus write? What did Jesus write in the ground? I think he probably wrote the sins as listed in the Ten Commandments. Because we can all point out someone else's sin or try to take a speck out of their eye when there's a plank in their own eye. And he might have written down bearing false witness or lying and then looked up at certain ones. He may have written murder. And they know what he said about murder before, that it's not just the act of murder, it's the hatred that person carries in their heart. He might have written, thou shalt honour your father and your mother, knowing that the Pharisees deliberately taught people to dishonor their parents by not keeping them and uh, looking after them in their old age financially. And when their parents asked for their support, they just had to say korban. In other words, it's given to the temple, so you can't touch it. The Pharisees taught them to say that, to neglect their parents. And so on and on. Thou shalt not steal. And there were many of them were just lovers of money. They would use corrupt means to get money for themselves. And he wrote the, the commandments and looked up. Maybe he wrote adultery. And maybe at that time the woman looked up and actually saw some of her previous clients there. In the crowd. And all of a sudden, this whole thing has changed. The focus is no longer on the woman or even upon Jesus. It's been turned around. And it's beaming right back. At them. The Bible says all judgment has been given to Jesus. He is the one that will judge in the end. Amen. Now, I think there's something more 
that I've never heard anybody teach, but I believe often that the Bible is the best interpretation of the Bible. So here's a verse from Jeremiah. Jeremiah says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Quote, those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. As you remember, the last time I shared, Jesus stood up on that last day of the feast and he said, if any man is thirsty, let him come unto me and drink. And out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. He was giving an offer of salvation. He was coming to the end of his ministry. He saw the, the, the pathetic state of the of religion at that time when the, the high priest poured out the water in that hot sand, dry sand, and it was just, it just evaporated. They had nothing to offer. And he cried out, if any man's really thirsty, come unto me and drink. And so all of a sudden, we have all the commandments and every one of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But there's an even greater sin than all these commandments. A sin that is unforgivable. There is no forgiveness for this sin. And that's to reject Jesus, the Savior, the fountain of living waters, which they were doing. This woman had sinned. There was forgiveness for that sin. But what they were guilty of was not only rejecting Jesus, but wanting to put him on the cross and get rid of him altogether. And all of a sudden it's coming to light. They're beginning to see what's happening here. See, either our names are written in the Lamb's book of life or they're written in the dust of the earth. They're written in the dust of the earth. What did Jesus write? Shall we go and see? <laughs> That's ridiculous, isn't it? It's all gone. Probably by the end of the day, the wind would have blown it or maybe the rain washed it away or people would have trampled it underfoot and you can't read it there now. It's gone. It's gone. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they've forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. And then Proverbs, we read the, the memory of the righteous, the one who puts his trust in Jesus is righteous. The memory of the righteous is blessed. Their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. But the name of the wicked will rot. Amen. It's funny because a lot of people say, oh, this is a scripture that says, you know, Jesus said, if, I forget what it is, if you, blah, 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 then your names will not be written, uh, your names will not be blotted out of the book of life. So they say, see, you can lose your salvation. I say, well, read it again. It doesn't say your names will be. It says your names won't be. Your names will not be writ, uh, blotted out. Your, if your name is in the book of life, you have eternal life. It's the book of life. Your names will not be blotted out of the book of life. But the memory of, uh, of the wicked will rot. Just something else on this writing with the finger of God. Three times it is written that the finger of God wrote. The first time was the giving of the law. Remember? Moses was up in the mountain. 
And when he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, that's the Ten Commandments, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Amazing. God must have a strong finger. <laughs> Wrote in rock the Ten Commandments. You know what happened? Moses came down the mountain with the, the tablets of stone. They'd already broken the law before he got to the bottom. They were committing idolatry. They thought that Moses was gone and they committed apostasy. They created another God and worshipped that. And Moses what? Smashed the stones. A symbol of the fact that it's broken. We've all broken the law of God. He had to go back up into the mountain of God. And the Ten Commandments were written again, this time by Moses. But the first time was by God. And then the second time we read of the finger of God writing is when judgment came against Belshazzar. Do you remember when the, the, the children of Israel were carried away into, Bab uh, into Babylon, into captivity? And there was a, a king that came after Nebuchadnezzar called Belshazzar and he was just, you know, uh, so, so uh, debauched and so on. He was, he was having a party and he, he ordered for the vessels from the temple to come so they might use this in this sort of orgy that he was having. And they were just celebrating and drinking out of the cups, the golden vessels and so on. There was the, the, the lampstand there. It says, in the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared. Can you just imagine that? Whoever saw the Adams family? Yeah, just the hand. <laughs> the same hand. How the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace and the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance changed, his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other as you would in a situation like that. Amen? But this is a picture of judgment because Daniel was the one that interpreted the, the writing. Nobody understood it. He basically said, look, you've been, found in the, uh, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Judgments. In fact, this very night, the Persians and the Medes are coming and they will take the kingdom from you. It's all over. Judgment day. So the first time was the giving of the law. The second time was judgment because we've all broken the law. But the third time, the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus was in a situation where a woman was being condemned on the basis of the law. And he wrote in the sand and somehow she was justified and went away pardoned without compromising truth. It's beautiful. Remember, that was our predicament too. Her situation was ours. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, isn't that beautiful? All the accusers gone. He said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. 
They came to him asking him to act as judge consistent with the law, and he did. But suddenly they realized that this was not good for them. They were now more aware of their own sin than the sin of the woman. And for once, she met a man whose motive was not to use her like those who wanted to fulfill their lusts with her, nor to exploit her like those who brought her to Jesus as a tool to trap him, nor to condemn her as he could as her judge. But she met a man who saved her, saved her in the fullest sense of the word. He didn't proclaim her innocence either because she wasn't innocent, but he forgave her without slighting the law or trivializing her sin. Mercy flowed out to her, yet not at the expense of justice. The justice of God's law was upheld. The grace of God never conflicts with his law, but fulfills it. Grace reigns through righteousness. There's a verse in the Psalm, I think it's in Psalm 85, where it says mercy, it's looking forward to the cross. It says mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. When you send a kiss, if you're sending an email or a letter to someone, you, 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 you write a cross. Isn't that right? We send a cross. That's what happened at the cross. Mercy and truth met together. That was the whole plot. How can mercy and truth... He preaches love, he preaches mercy, but the law says this. How can these two be reconciled? Righteousness and peace kissed each other at the cross. Here was a concrete case of a guilty sinner leaving the presence of Christ uncondemned. Why? Well, we know the reason why. Because he was on his way to pay the price for this sin, your sin, my sin, even the sins of those that brought her to him if they would receive it. Now let's bring that into our situation. The devil is the accuser. He uses people often to accuse. Amen. Paul asks this, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. He stands up for us and justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. Why did he say that? Because the only one who can condemn, you see, we talk about the condemnation of the devil. He cannot condemn you. He can accuse you. All judgment has been given to Christ. He's the only one who can condemn. And the, one, the only one who can condemn us is the one who died for us to fulfill the righteous law of God. And furthermore, is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Just as he stood up for this woman, our advocate, also silences our adversaries. Amen. Amen. We do have an adversary, but we have an advocate, one who's always standing up for us and speaking for us. We don't have, she didn't say a word in her own defense. You don't have to speak in your own defense. <coughs> it's not up to you justifying yourself or, 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 or proving yourself to anyone. There is one who stands up for you. 
That's the Lord Jesus Christ. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's why he said to this woman, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Religion reverses this, right? Religion turns that the other way around. If you stop sinning, we won't condemn you. Jesus said, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. That's the order. First of all, he deals with the penalty of sin. No condemnation. Then the power of sin. Go and sin no more. I, I, I empower you. I free you from the dominion of sin's power. Blessed are those who do not confine us to our past failures. For they are like Jesus. Let's just finish up. The irony of this whole passage. The ones they sent to arrest Jesus ended up believing in him. The temple police. The one they sought to condemn was forgiven. The accusers were exposed and went away unforgiven. And their names are written in the earth. They will rot. I couldn't think of a better passage to quote than this one. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, as they thought they were wise, they thought they had boxed Jesus into a corner, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. You know, I've spoken to different people at different times and, 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 and people have said to me, you know what, if there's a God, when I see him, I'm going to ask him a few questions. I'm going to back him into a corner. I thought, oh dear, it's probably not going to work out as you think it would. <laughs> the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. The foolishness of God is the gospel. It's, it's the foolishness of God. Paul says that, but it's wiser than the wisdom of man. I was just thinking about, you know, we used to sing a, a hymn, a beautiful hymn. I don't know if you know it, Love Found a Way. Anybody know that hymn? One or two. In the days when we used to sing hymns. Remember that, those days when dinosaurs walked on <laughs> the earth? Love found a way to redeem my soul. Love found a way that would make me whole. Love sent my Lord to the cross of shame. Love found a way. Oh, praise his holy name. This, this was a dilemma that seemed unsolvable. How can the love of God and the justice of God harmonize? Love found a way. That's the wisdom of God. Foolishness to man, but exceedingly wise. He took our sin. He placed it on Jesus, who went to the cross, dealt with it. It's finished. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven as our advocate, the one who stands for us, defends us against all accusations, and declares us always to be the righteousness of God in him. Love found a way. Praise his holy name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning.
for this beautiful passage in which we see ourselves, Lord. We see ourselves as the one the enemy would bring and throw before you, pointing to us and pointing to your law and shouting out, you must condemn us, you must judge us, you must destroy us. But Lord, we thank you that love found a way and Jesus points to the blood, shows the nail scars in his hands and said, it's all been paid, it is finished. And we are justified in the sight of God. Lord, we thank you for the old, old story that's ever new. Help us never to wander from it, Lord God, to stray from it, but forever to rejoice in it, to go deeper into it, that we might, Lord God, share this wonderful message to the dying world around us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.